If you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. First Corinthians chapter 10, and tonight we're going to be starting in verse 23. We're going to start in verse 23. Before we start, I just want to say this. Everybody stretch your toes out a little bit. Stretch your toes out a little bit, because I'm going to step on them tonight more than likely. Okay. Giving you advance warning. You'll roll on. That's fine. I'm just giving you some advance warning. Be prepared. I'm probably going to step on your toes a little bit. It means I'm going to preach the word. That's what it means. If preaching the word doesn't step on your toes, then somebody's not doing it right. Just going to be honest. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 23, and Paul has been building up to this point for several chapters. He's been building up to this point for several chapters, and in reality, he's been building up to this point since the beginning of 1 Corinthians. He's been building up to this point since the beginning of 1 Corinthians because one of the things that is extraordinarily apparent when you read 1 Corinthians, when you really consider the context, is that these people are really full of themselves. They are really full of themselves. They are really full of their own self-importance. And they are very selfish. And Paul has been dealing with these things in these believers from the beginning, talking about what real wisdom is, talking about the right way to think about the things of God, talking about sexual immorality and not just sexual immorality but our response to sexual immorality and sin talking about the way that we as believers should interact with each other talking about marriage and the things surrounding marriage and how we should think about those things talking about idolatry and what is and is not idol worship and then we get to this portion in chapter 10 And Paul kind of finishes it out and comes to his summation to help us really understand how we should think about these things and what it is we should do with them. And it all kind of culminates. This is another spot where the chapter break is bad. We're going to go from 1023 into chapter 11, verse 1, because it's a bad chapter break there. And I think that 11.1 is really the end point that Paul is utilizing in this argument. And it culminates in that verse where Paul says, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. And so the idea here is that we should not look to ourselves to try to determine what is the right way to live, but that we should look to those who are Christ-like, whose lives do align with the scriptures and live like them. That's what Paul is really building to. He wants us to understand that the way we can navigate through issues that the scripture doesn't directly speak to is by looking to those who are Christ-like. Because the truth of the matter is the Bible does not tell us how to handle every single situation that might arise in your life. This is not a how-to manual. 
That's not what the Bible is for. That's not how we ought to read it. Because if you do, you're going to run into a lot of problems. Because the Bible doesn't tell you whether or not you should wear a green shirt or a blue shirt in the morning. It doesn't tell you. The Bible doesn't tell you how to do algebra, which I think is important because algebra is from Satan. And that's why the Bible doesn't address it. But I'm just saying. But the point is that when we find people who are Christ-like, who do think biblically about life, and we don't know what to do, we can ask them for wisdom. We can imitate them as they imitate Christ. And that is what Paul is kind of driving toward in this passage. So let's look together. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 23. And this is what it says. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat, sold in the meat market without, without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Verse 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. And then at chapter 11, verse 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So the first thing we see in this passage is that we are called as Christians to seek the good of our neighbor, to seek the good of our neighbor. So Paul begins by quoting back to the Corinthians something that they likely quoted to him in their writing to him. It could be a quote that they came up with. It could be just kind of a common saying there in Corinth and this idea of all things are lawful. So we talked before about how under the new covenant, we are no longer bound by the Old Testament law, right? Praise God, we can eat bacon. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Whew. Thank you, Jesus. Literally. We can wear clothing made of two different fabrics simultaneously. Those are things that we can do because Christ has fulfilled the law. Okay? So when we think all things are lawful, some people take that Christ has fulfilled the law and carry it to an extreme and say, there is nothing that is wrong for Christians to do. That's just silly. Okay, that's just a silly thing to say. But there are those who say all things that the Old Testament speaks of as unlawful are now lawful. There are those who just kind of carry this as a way of approaching things is that 
I don't, I'm not bound by the law. I'm bound by the new covenant. And so the things that are mentioned in the New Testament and the new covenant, those are the things that I cannot do. However you want to approach it, Paul is not here making a statement about what you should or should not do under the law. I want to be really careful here and make sure we all understand that. This is not Paul helping us to understand what the law does or does not do for the believer. There are other places in the New Testament that we could go to really explore that deeply. The book of Galatians, the letter to the Romans, the book of Hebrews. Those are places that we could really dig deep into what is the Christian's relationship to the law. But what Paul wants to address is something different. He basically says, even if all things are lawful, even if you have the freedom to do whatever you want, not all things are helpful. And the context here is not helpful to you, but helpful to your neighbor. So not so all things might be lawful, but not all things are helpful, and not all things build up. So you have to think beyond just what am I free to do? Paul wants you to understand. He wanted the Corinthians to understand. He wants us to understand that our thoughts should not begin and end with what am I allowed to do? But it is what is good for my neighbor? What is good for the body of Christ as a whole? I've said more than once as we've walked through the book of 1 Corinthians, the Christian life is not a solo project. We live in community with other believers. We need each other. We need each other. And so we have to consider other people. And that's exactly the point that Paul is making here. So when you think about your liberty, what are you free to do? Also consider what is helpful for my neighbor? What builds up my neighbor? So there are times, and I think scripture gives me the freedom to do this, and you might be shocked, there are times where I am sarcastic in how I respond to people. I know, I know that comes as a surprise. Some of you were like, I, I never knew. There's a reason why the Minsons brought me back a little desk sign that says, I speak fluent sarcasm. <laughs> Sometimes the youth get sarcastic with me and I'm like, kid, you're, you're dealing with a master here. What's, what's, what are you thinking? Would you try to go box Mike Tyson? Don't, don't do this to yourself. This is a bad plan. However, and, and I do think that there are times where me responding to things sarcastically is appropriate. Paul responded to some things sarcastically, dealing with the Judaizers who were saying, listen, if you really want to be a Christian, you have to be circumcised. And Paul says, listen, if they're really worried about being holy, they should just cut the whole thing off. <laughs> I mean, look, if cutting a little bit off is holy, be super holy. Just go to town. That is a very sarcastic way to handle that. I can, I can truthfully say I have never been that sarcastic in response to something. But there are times where sarcasm is not the helpful way to handle it. And so I have to consider that. I might be free to be sarcastic, but I have to consider what is helpful, what builds up. And so we have to seek 
the good of your neighbor. Like my mother always used to tell me, and I'm sure your mothers and fathers probably told you something similar. You probably told your children something similar. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Because again, this is about life together. So Paul says here, let no one seek his own good but the good of your neighbor. Brothers and sisters, think for a moment about how wonderful church life would be if all of us lived by that. There are churches that have split over the silliest things. They got a building project and half the people leave because they wanted this color carpet and they decided on the other color carpet and they're mad and they're leaving. I kid you not, there was a church in Alabama that split over whether to have coat racks or coat hangers. I'm not joking. That is a real thing. There was a group that wanted to have coat racks that were out at the backside of the sanctuary, and there, were other group, there was another group that wanted to hang coat hangers along the walls in the sanctuary. And the church split over that. Seek the good of your neighbor. When the Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself, it literally means if there's one bite of food left and you are both about to starve to death, you give it to your neighbor. That's literally what it's trying to communicate. You love your neighbor as you love yourself. You care for them like you would care for yourself. So Paul is saying again to the Corinthians, seek the good of your neighbor. So in light of what he's talking about, he's been talking about this idea of eating meat that is sacrificed to idols, right? And so he's been saying, don't, don't just feel like you can because you have the legal freedom to under Christ, but consider whether or not you should. And so the second thing we see in our passage is that we should be seeking the glory of God. So we, we should be seeking the good of our neighbor and we should seek the glory of God. So like I said before, it's important to recognize that scripture does not contain an exhaustive list of how to ha handle every single potential situation. Parents, scripture does not tell you how to handle it when your child comes to you and says, mom, dad, I'm pregnant and I'm not married and I don't know who the father is. Scripture doesn't tell you what to do right then. Specifically, does it? But what scripture does is it teaches us truth and it gives us things that we can look to that we can understand principles to help us to make decisions about how to handle certain things. And so right here in our passage, we see three kind of, uh, I, heard a preacher, I heard a preacher call these case studies. I thought that was an interesting way to look at it. Three case studies of here are some possible situations that could occur. And in light of what we know to be true, here's what you should do. It's kind of how he's approaching that. So we can't handle every possible situation of what to do if you're eating meat in this culture, but here's three possible ways to look at it. So the first thing we see is meat from the market. He says in verse 25, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question 
on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. So in this culture, if you went to the market and you found a great deal on meat, my wife is a fantastic shopper. She gets all the sale papers and she spends Monday evening and Tuesday evening looking through the sale papers and figuring out what's there and what's not and what's on sale. My wife, not that long ago, she loves going to Aldi. It is her favorite store. If you've never been, tell Hannah and she will take you and excitedly show you around. Will she not, Miss Ann? Miss Ann had that experience a couple weeks ago. About a month ago, my wife was at Aldi and she calls me all excited and she says, hey, they've got the, they've got the hams marked down. And I was like, marked down how much? She goes, they're a dollar. I was like, a dollar a pound? She goes, no, a dollar. They're a dollar. So she bought, huh? Yeah, they were all like 12, 13, 14 pound hams for a buck. And she's like, can I get some? I was like, sure. So we've got ham in our freezer. We got ham in the Minson's freezer. We had ham in the church's freezer. We had ham all over the place. She's calling everybody we know. She's like, hey, do you want ham? They got it for a dollar. No, a dollar for the whole thing. She, found, she finds great deals. And in this culture, if you go and you find a great deal on meat, it's very likely that a few hours ago, that was meat sitting on an altar that had been sacrificed to an idol. It's very likely that that's what it was. And so Paul says, hey, if you're out at the meat market, you come across some great steaks, and the price is right, get them, eat them, enjoy them. Just don't ask no questions. Just don't say to the, meat, to the, to the butcher, hey, where'd these come from? Just take them, eat them, enjoy them. Why? Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Christ's death redeemed all of it. There is no longer clean or unclean. God made it for us to enjoy. So enjoy it. Eat that steak. Savor it. Chew it a bunch of times like your mama taught you so you don't choke and die. But enjoy it. Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Paul gives us another one. He says, if one of the unbelievers invites you over to their house and you are disposed to go, you want to go, go and eat whatever they place before you without asking any questions on the ground of conscience. So if your neighbor invites you over, and they serve you some steak. Don't ask them, hey, was this sacrifice to an idol? Don't even ask them, hey, where'd it come from? Just eat it and enjoy it. Have a good time. Why? Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. I think we oftentimes try to look for reasons why we can't enjoy things. Well, what about this? What about that? Especially in today's society, like, oh, was this, was this a pasture-raised animal? Or was this, was this a stall-raised animal? Are these free-range chickens? The eggs all taste the same. They all, my wife disagrees, but they all taste the same. They all do. It's eggs. It's bacon. I don't care if they raised that pig in a guest bedroom at somebody's house. It could have grown up at the Motel 6 lobby. I don't care. It's bacon, and it's delicious. 
Amen? Amen. All right, my people. <laughs> but we live in a society where they want you to ask all these questions. Is this, is this vegan friendly? Was, was this pig allowed to suckle from its mother until it grew up too much? Like, who cares? It's a pig. God made it so we could kill it and eat it. We could eat it. That's what it's for. That's what it's for. So don't ask any questions. If an unbeliever invites you over, you know that steak was probably an idol sacrifice. Just eat it. But then we get to the third one. He says in verse 28, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. So if your neighbor invites you over, if an unbeliever invites you over and they put it in front of you and they say, hey, I got a good deal on that because it was a sacrifice. Don't eat it. Don't eat it. So if they start to say it, just close it. Don't tell me. I don't want to know. Don't. But that's what he says. If you know it's an idol sacrifice, if they tell you it's an idol sacrifice, this is why he says don't ask questions. If you know it is, don't eat it. Why? He says in verse, uh, the back half of verse 28, he says, for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. Now, not your conscience, but their conscience. Not your conscience, but their conscience. And here's, here's what he means. So remember, in this scenario, this is an unbeliever who has invited you over and you are eating meat sacrificed to an idol or you're going to and they say, this is meat sacrificed to an idol. The reason why Paul says don't eat it is because what message does it convey to this unbeliever? It conveys Miss Nadine is totally down with idol sacrifice. And by extension, all Christians are totally down with idol sacrifice. And we are not. We're not. So for the sake of the one who informed you, don't do it. For the sake of their conscience, don't do it. So, Maybe it's somebody who is struggling a little bit with whether or not this is okay. Should I eat meat sacrificed to an idol? Should I not? And they put it in front of you. Well, this is meat sacrificed to an idol. Should we eat it? Don't damage their conscience. If they are questioning it, don't eat it. It's, it's as simple as that. As Paul said back in chapter 8, he would give up meat altogether. He would never eat bacon again for the sake of not causing his brother to stumble. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. That would be a hard sell for me. But that's the kind of self-sacrifice that we're called to in the scriptures. That's the kind of self-sacrifice that we should be willing to make. I'm not laughing. Bacon is serious business, Miss Sandy. Miss Sandy's laughing like I'm making a joke. No, I'm for real. But Paul wants, Paul says something really important in verse 29. He says, I do not mean your conscience, but his, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? Verse 30, if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I gave thanks? So Paul says, why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? In other words, people's conscience does not suddenly make eating meat sacrificed to an idol a sin. Paul very clearly said, it is not a sin to do this. It is a sin if you go to the temple and you participate in the feast and the festival. That is a sin because that is idol worship. But just eating the meat is not a sin. 
And somebody's conscience being troubled by it does not magically change it from freedom to sinfulness. It doesn't work that way. We should be very careful not to assert our conscience as the decider of whether or not something is sinful. We should be very careful about that. So I'm going to use a modern analogy because we don't really have idol temples that we have to think this through. We don't have to worry about when we go to the meat market, did this come from a sacrifice at an idol's temple? So I want to use a modern example. So you remember before when I told you to stretch out your toes? All right. Southern Baptists have some distinctives. We believe in congregational government. We believe in the autonomy of the local body. And for better or worse, Southern Baptists historically are teetotalers. They do not drink alcohol. And some go so far as to say that the consumption of alcohol is a sin. And here's what I'll tell you. If you can find that in the Bible, I will give you $1,000. You can look all you want. You ain't going to find it. You know why? Because drinking alcohol is not a sin. It's not a sin. Now, you can have a discussion about whether or not it is wise to drink alcohol. You can have a discussion about whether or not it is an effective witness to drink alcohol and all of those things are fair game to discuss but we should not take those things and say that makes it a sin because you know who did stuff like that the pharisees and i don't know about you guys but i'm not really on board with being a pharisee so here's how this kind of works out when we think about it in a modern sense it is not a sin to drink alcohol. It's not a sin to drink alcohol. But I'm not going to invite you out to lunch and order a beer. Because I know this is a Baptist church. This is a Baptist church, and I know that probably most of you would have consciences that would be offended if your associate pastor started putting back beers at lunchtime. Amen. <laughs> And that's fine. But remember, our consciences don't decide whether or not something is sinful or not sinful. But we have to consider the good of our neighbor. We have to consider the good of our neighbor. Because what does the next verse say? Whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Do all to the glory of God. So don't see this as a separate command from seeking the good of your neighbor. Seeking the glory of God and seeking the good of your neighbor are not separate things that are at odds with each other. You can't, they're, they're not like, oh, well, I'm seeking the good of my neighbor, so I'm not worried about the glory of God right now. No, seeking the good of your neighbor is seeking the glory of God. They are linked to each other. The partner of seeking the good of your neighbor is, see, is doing all things to the glory of God. And the good of your neighbor is glorifying to God. 
So that's why we lay down our lives. And I make that analogy, I make that modern analogy on purpose. Number one, because I know that it makes some of you uncomfortable. I know that some of you are sitting there going right now, I can't believe he said that. That's so wrong. That's so bad. That's so. And listen, I don't say that lightly. I come from a family. My father was a violent alcoholic. His father was a violent alcoholic. His father was a violent alcoholic. And I could keep going back down the family tree. I am well aware of the damage that alcohol can do. I'm well aware of it. I'm also well aware of the damage that excess salt content can do. Well aware of the damage that too much bacon can do. Amen? Well aware of the damage that too much anger can do. There's a lot of things out there that to an extent are holy and beyond that are wrong. And the Bible very clearly says, don't be a drunkard. Don't be a drunkard. It's very clear. So we should consider the good of our neighbor as a way to glorify God in all that we do. That's how we should think about these things. That's how we should think about these things. We go, we go on in verse 32 and 33 and we see that we should seek to please everyone. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. So we should be striving to not be a stumbling block. We should not be a stumbling block to people coming to the gospel. So consider what Paul says, right? If you're at an unbeliever's house and they offer you meat and they say this was sacrificed to an idol and he says don't eat it, that's because that's now a stumbling block to their right understanding of the gospel because what are they going to think? I can serve Christ and worship idols, and you can't. Does that make sense? That is a stumbling block. We should be striving to not be a stumbling block. I, my youth pastor used to say this all the time. The gospel is the stumbling block, not us. A.K.A. don't be a jerk. Sometimes you think you're being persecuted for the sake of the gospel, and the reality is you're just being a jerk. And he said that to me a lot. Can't imagine why. The gospel is offensive enough to the world. We don't need to add more offense to it. We don't need to make it more offensive. But we also shouldn't try to make it less offensive, right? There's an element of us that should be a people pleaser, but the Bible does speak against man-pleasing. So what, what the difference is there is that we should not seek to not call sin, sin. There are churches out there that have changed their stance on things like homosexuality because they want to please everyone. They want to love everyone. <coughs> That is not, first of all, it's not seeking the good of your neighbor, but it's definitely not doing all things to the glory of God. We must speak the truth at all times. So how do we tell the difference between 
trying to please everyone, as Paul says here, and being a man pleaser as the Bible condemns. We should not seek our own advantage. We should not be seeking our own advantage. So in other words, we should not be making decisions or teaching things strictly to try to keep your own power or privilege. We should not be making decisions or teaching things in in an effort to keep influence or approval. And we should not be making decisions to simply keep peace and quiet. There's an aspect of, of Christianity that is kind, that is nice, so to speak, but there are certain things that we should not just go along to get along, right? Paul very clearly in 1 Corinthians 5 says that this guy who is having a sexual relationship with his father's wife is in sin and the church should put him out. He doesn't say, well, we should try to please him to understand his perspective. No. He says, put him out. Let the world, let the devil have their way with him that hopefully he will return in repentance. Paul says it's okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols, but it's not okay to go to the temple and worship idols. You can't soften for the sake of pleasing people. You must stand firm. We have to make decisions that are rooted in the truth of the scriptures in order that Christ would be glorified and people would be saved. That's what Paul is saying here. Paul's saying that is that his aim is to have the ability to speak to these people to share the gospel with them. Now, once he shares the gospel with them, they might be super offended and never speak to him again. But he has no control over that. But he is going to do everything he can to live his life in a way that gives him that opportunity. Now, I want you to know, I did not plan to specifically be preaching this message the night, the evening service where Pastor Mitch introduced Who's Your One this morning. That was not my intention. That was God's work. But this is something that is really important for us as we consider reaching out to our neighbors. Because as Hannah shared, a lot of our neighbors don't speak English. A lot of our neighbors have a different religion. A lot of your neighbors have a different religion. The people that you might be considering and praying about sharing the gospel with over the next month or so might be people that you have to strongly consider, how do I seek the good of my neighbor? How do I keep an open door for the sake of the gospel? How do I do that? How can I do that? And so here's what Paul says. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So we should be able to identify those who know the truth and love their neighbor. And then we do what they do. We, we, we see those who are doing this well and we just mimic them. You're not going to get in trouble for plagiarism. Nobody's going to say, oh, you copied me. That's good. We should strive to live our lives in a way that showcase these things so that other people can imitate us. 
I've been a Christian since I was 15-ish. I'm 36 today, so that's about 21 years. Hey, my spiritual life's old enough to drink. How about that? (laughs) I totally just thought of that. Sorry, I couldn't resist. Some of you have been Christians for 40, 50, maybe 60 years. We need your example. We need your lifetime of living out the truth of the gospel so that we can see it. Our teenagers need that. Our teenagers need to be able to look to people in our church and say, man, Miss Jerry loves her neighbor. I'm going to imitate her as she imitates Christ. So the calling for all of us is to examine our lives and our hearts and say, am I imitating Christ? And the other thing is, you never outgrow needing to imitate someone. And you don't necessarily have to find somebody who has a whole lot more experience doing it. It's just about finding people who are doing it well and imitating them. Seek to imitate those worth imitating. Our culture is filled with people who are not worth imitating. And our society is imitating them all day long. They are imitating athletes. They are imitating entertainers. They're imitating actors. They're imitating politicians. They're imitating all of these people who are not worth imitating. Seek to be worth imitating and imitate those who are worth imitating. And you know where you find those people? You don't find them on the screen, whether the big screen or the small screen, small screen or the screen in between. You don't find them there. You don't find them out at the sports arena. You don't find them on the golf course. You don't find them singing at the concert. You find them here in the church. And if our church doesn't have anybody worth imitating, shame on us. And I'm not saying that we don't, because I think that we do. But we need to constantly examine our hearts and ask, am I worth imitating? And am I imitating someone who's worth imitating? Because we're all imitating all the way down. Because here's the truth. We cannot get through life without imitating somebody. Your hairstyle, somebody else had it before you. I'm serious. Somebody else had it before you. The way you do your makeup, somebody else did that first. The clothes you wear, somebody designed them. Unless you made them yourself, which, bravo, hats off. But even then, you probably didn't manufacture the fabric yourself. We're all imitating somebody. So why don't we imitate people who imitate Christ? Because he's the only one worth imitating. He came and lived a life so that we can follow his example. So let's do it. As a church, let's lay down our lives and seek the good of our neighbor, do everything to the glory of God, seek to please everyone that we might be able to win them with the gospel. Let's find those who we can imitate because they are imitating Christ. And let's live that life together. Let's pray. Father, thank you. 
Thank you for your word that helps us to understand how we should live. Thank you for your son who came and lived a perfect life to set us free from sin, from death, from the captivity we have to our own flesh. I pray, Father, that you would help us to love our neighbor well, to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, to seek their good always, to not care about our own advantage, to not seek our own profit, but simply, Father, to seek the ability to share the gospel because that is why we are alive. Help us, Lord, to glorify Christ in every single thing that we do, with every breath that we take, with every word that we speak. I pray that Christ would be glorified. Help us, Lord, to be people worth imitating, that we can say to believers, imitate me as I imitate Christ, and really mean it. Father, thank you for this church, for the ways that you work in our lives, the ways that you move us to love and care for each other. And I pray, Father, that we would glorify you. Help our lives to be lives of Christ-likeness. We pray this in his name and for his glory forever. Amen.